We're also very grateful to be endorsed by one of the nation's largest Catholic advocacy groups, Catholic Vote. It's called Catholic Vote. And I just want to thank them. They are incredible. We got quite a few responses. Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) We have some people are like, you should vote at all. You should have a Catholic monarchy in America, which is a very interesting take. Uh, we have the people that find Trump's personality reprehensible. I get that. Some DeSantis people are salty. Dude, I love DeSantis. Politics, as Josh likes to say, is the art of getting uh, stuff, or the other S word, done. We now have a unique election coming up in which you'll have two presidents on the ballot. They both had one term, and you can compare the two terms. Who did a better job? All right, everyone, welcome back to the Loopcast. Today, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Erica and Josh. And we were keeping the eye on New Hampshire. You know, maybe Nikki, she was saying it was a two-man race. Maybe she had a shot. She won the first six votes. Two she was person. Very two person. Come on. <laughs> I'm feeling the sexism Tom, just dripping on, through man. the airwaves. <laughs> no, wait, actually, before we get into this New Hampshire stuff, we will. We will. I just got to do a little house cleaning because I mentioned a really good book that's coming out by Tim Carney, and I accidentally... I accidentally called it Unfriendly America. My 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 friend Mikey called me out on this. He said, yes, send me a message. Hey, yo, sent the message in. I meant to say family unfriendly. You know, like ah, like restaurants are family family friendly restaurants, it's family unfriendly. So, but see, here's the thing. I think Mikey's a little sore because 25 years ago I kicked his butt in trivia pursuit. And so he just likes to be able to say, I gotcha, you got something wrong. I came in where he was playing all his, you know, all his buddies and they're playing Chili Pursuit and I come in halfway, like at halftime, right? And I come into the game and I'm like, wait, whose team am I on? Yours? No, no, no. Okay. You're going down. And they all just start laughing, like just coming in real hot, you know? And the first question my team gets, not even kidding you. What Minnesota Vikings quarterback? I'm like, come on, man. (laughs) Free turkey, kid. Don't even finish the question. stars aligned. (laughs) (laughs) To say the least, we, uh, we smoked him. So, Mikey, I got it wrong. You finally got me, but, you know, I think he wants a rematch. I think that's what it is. The next big, Loopcast Live is fine and all, but I think the next big move for Loopcast is we're going to have a trivial pursuit, maybe virtual matchup to see who can beat Mercer. And we have a sweepstakes. We'll get money. It'll be great. You know, actually, uh, this guy, Chris, he's on, uh, he was on Shark Tank for a while. He's like a guest host. He was, he's like, oh man, trivial pursuit. Do you like to play? And I'm like, eh. I'm not too bad. I'm like the pool hustler, right? I'm like kind of the sandbagging, yeah, totally sandbagging. He's like, yeah, dude, I'm actually. He's like, I'm actually really good. I'm like, oh, really? That's that's good. That's good. Yeah. He's like, well, you want to play? I'm like, ah, what the heck, you know? So I smoke him, right? He's like, we got a rematch. Smoked him again. <laughs> rematch three, four, five, six times. He finally, the seventh game, he finally beat me, and then we never played again. He's like, he never wanted to play. He just wanted to know that he actually could defeat me. So. So this podcast has just become Josh bragging about how good he is at Trivia Pursuit, which, you know what, fine. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll allow it for now. Uh, but I would like to hear about what happened in New Hampshire because someone thought that Nikki Haley had a chance or someone with a lo- loud microphone said so because that seemed to be uh, what was happening and it appears that she got crushed. Uh, no, and- I wouldn't say crushed. I mean, the margin was actually closer than, yeah, it was closer than Iowa. You know why, well, though? All the Democrats voted for her. Yeah, actually- 
Steve, this is exactly what happened. Steve Kornacki, he he ran our analysis. He's a number cruncher over at NBC, and he said that we've never before seen this large of a gap between the independent vote and the Republican vote. So, you know, in the New Hampshire primary, it's open. So independents can walk in, Democrats can walk in, and if there's no contest on the Democratic side and you want to mix things up or mess things up for the GOP, you just, oh yeah, sure, I'll vote in the Republican primary. So Donald Trump won Republicans by 49 points. Yes, in New Hampshire, okay? 49-point victory. However, Nikki Haley wins independence by 22 points. So it's a swing of 71 points. The previous high of a swing was 40. That's a, almost double the gap. So you go to all these other states, South Carolina's coming up. You know, you got Nevada where they had caucuses, Michigan, and you're not going to see this same thing where a bunch of Democrats are going to cross over and vote. And I mean, it's over. I mean, it was a question of what Nikki's going to do. Is she going to quit? And apparently she's not going to. See, the, the, a lot of people were thinking, oh, well, she's not going to want to do go into South Carolina where she was previously governor and get whomped, right? Because that was like Marco Rubio was worried about that. He's like, I'm not, I don't want to go back to Florida when he was running for president. I don't want to go to Florida and get embarrassed in my home state. So he quit before that, right? I mean, I get it, right? You, don't, you, know, you still want a political future in your home state. And, uh, but Nikki, apparently she doesn't care. I guess she doesn't mind if she loses South Carolina. She's got to support Boeing and all of her other donors that she's going to keep this race going. Uh, she's, you know, her mission is to bomb as many countries as possible. So, uh, bombs away. Erica, you have, I, I see a quote here. I sure did. Yeah. So yeah, Trump wins. It's over. I mean, at this point. Nikki Haley says, this race is far from over. I'm like, what planet are you rotating on? And really, what planet are her donors rotating on? I'd love to see inside that uh, conversation going on. Like, she really can't win. Um, Martin Gurry over at the Free Press this morning, he had a, a, a neat analysis. And we've talked about this a lot on the show. We've talked about Joy Reid. We talked about the uh, MSNBCs just like blow up after Iowa. They just, they can't handle the fact that Americans might be voting for Trump and that this could be a reality that he might be the next president of the United States. Um, and Martin Gurry, he he took the opportunity of New Hampshire, which was no big surprise, the, the outcome that Nikki lost. There's some interesting number crunching. I totally get that. Like, what was it? 70% of Nikki's votes came from independents and Democrats. They weren't actually true Republican votes, blah, blah, blah. But he took the opportunity to really use New Hampshire um, and the reaction from the left, from the progressive side, uh, as a bellwether for understanding what's going on in the United States now. And I just thought this really speaks, he summed up what we've been trying to say, that the Trump campaign to this point, it has, has done us the service of exposing what he calls the malady. And he says, the elites have lost faith in representative democracy. And to smash the nightmare image of themselves that Trump evokes they are willing to twist and force our system until it breaks. And again, we see this in Rachel, Rachel Maddow. We see it in Joy Reid. Uh, we see it in academia. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, we see it, I think, all the way up into the halls of power, people who actually make decisions that affect us, including, you know, some of Joe Biden's uh, nominees for the Supreme Court. I think we see it in KJB. Um, we see it in Obama's Supreme Court people. It, like, they're willing to smash the system because they hate 
half the American people so deeply. And I think that's what the campaign at this point is exposing, um, this sort of stark It's choice. like a cycle, though, Erica. I mean, like, the American, uh, American people are frustrated that the elites don't represent them anymore. So they're like, let's get Donald Trump in there to mix things up and to blow things up and, and to shake things up. And then the left is like, wait a minute now. If democracy means people like this, then democracy must be bad, and therefore we shouldn't let people vote. Therefore, in order to save democracy, we should kick this guy off the ballot. It's like it, it, it sounds like Vietnam. We had to destroy the village in order to save it. Like, what are you talking about? Like, well, in what world? And it shouldn't surprise us. These are the same people who think you should not have the freedom to, uh, of speech. You should not be able to say marriage is between a man and a woman. You should not say that, you know, a person is born male or female and you can't just change your gender like you change your underwear and they kick you off social media. I mean, this is crazy. So these same people are like, it's too dangerous to let this person, we can't have free elections anymore. Like, what? What? It's classic abuser psychology. It's like a accusing the other side of what you actually are doing. And it's, it's all about democracy as long as I'm in power and I can keep this and that, uh, you know, keep these structures in place that benefit me. You may have elections as long as you pick the right people, okay? Yeah, exactly right. It's not true democracy and, and not true free speech. I mean, you're seeing this everywhere. It's interesting how Trump has really exposed that ugly underbelly of the country that's like, yeah, we're about the American flag flying until it doesn't benefit me and my people and keeps my people rich, my people in power, yada, yada, yada. But I think nothing really, I, you said this, Eric, and I, this is personally kind of how I think about it. I'm so frustrated with the current system. Uh, that Trump just seems like uh, the fact that they're so terrified of him and they hate him so much and they create so many lies and narrative about him actually just makes people want to support him more. The thing, reason I think Nikki Haley, you're like, why is he still running even though she has no chance? It's because her donors are wanting to pay for someone who will attack him every time. And so it's pay to play. She's just going to fill this role. She'll attack him, bring the money in. That's why. That's my, I, I'm cynical, but that's what I, maybe, but. Yeah, we'll, and we'll get to that. I have more on that later. But Catholic vote endorsed Trump. This was right after uh, DeSantis dropped out. And we say mailbag because we have, uh, we got quite a few responses. We had some responses. Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> we wanted to share them. He had some responses. And you know, it's interesting. Like we have everyone on the spectrum. It's been interesting to see the responses because we have some people that are like, you should vote at all. You know that you should have a Catholic monarchy in America, which is a very interesting take. Uh, we have the people that just find Trump's personality reprehensible that we can never vote for him, and then we have other people who are like, "Well, we should have." You know, some DeSantis people are salty. It's just kind of an interesting grenade. Kind of funny from my perspective because, like, what's the other alternative? We're gonna endorse Nikki Haley to throw us in foreign wars. Like, I, that doesn't seem palatable. We're gonna endorse Biden. Like, it's almost like, what's the other, the other alternative? But yeah. So what, what was, uh, we, <clears throat> I can go through some of the responses, but before, uh, were you surprised by the, these response, the, the response that we got here? Uh, did you see it coming? It kind of feels like anything involving Trump kind of is a powder keg. Definitely powder keg. No, I, this was, this is my favorite response. We had pill avionics on Twitter responding and he goes unfollow. What what this has to do with being Catholic, lowercase c, and then homesteading mama shout out just says this page is called Catholic vote dot dot dot. <laughs> it's like yeah, duh. But it was kind of yeah. The the response is no big surprise. Like you said, Trump seems to elicit 
just the most extreme responses from all sides. And yeah, I've had family members be like, you guys, why don't you just not endorse anyone? Why, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the reality is like we live in a political world, political politics, as Josh likes to say, is the art of getting uh, stuff or the other S word done. And the reality is that Trump is the choice. He is the guy who's going to be the nominee. And our primary objective here is defeat Joe Biden. Like we cannot afford another four years of Democrat hegemony, hegemony, I always pronounce it wrong, um, in the halls of power. And, you know, do we want do we want four more years of the FBI knocking down Mark Houck's door? Do we want four more years of be, of this trans stuff on kids and all that, everything, the whole the whole gamut, everything that we discuss on this program? The reality is Trump is the guy who is in the role to get stuff done. It behooves us to make that choice and to act accordingly. I don't I, I don't understand the sit this one out uh, philosophy that that seems to come from a lot of the more the more good natured responses. The, the, the like kindest response we got that was uh, reacting to this was we just shouldn't have endorsed anyone. Um, Which is that's just not Catholic vote. A Catholic vote's never been about telling people to sit it out, sit anything out. Well, and the idea of endorsement, I want to be really clear on this. The idea of endorsing a candidate is not to say that we love every single thing he does. We love everything about his personal life. He's the next, you know, Saint whoever, Saint Louis the 10th of France. He's, you know, it's not to say that. It's to say, we want this guy to win this next election and we're going to work towards that. You know what annoys me about that, Erica, though? And, and this annoys me about so many things like, we shouldn't have to make that caveat. That should that's should be understood. And Donald Trump, during his time in the presidency, did a lot of amazing things for the country. Like we could vote for someone based on his own merits. Of course, when you talk about politicians, there's this weird cult that follows them of like, well, you support everything he does. Well, of course not. Like, have you ever done anything like that? Applying that standard to everything is is ridiculous. But if you want to talk about the people he put on the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, humongous how good the economy was at the time. Uh, look at foreign policy during that time too. We, we don't see any foreign wars. We weren't pulling out of Af- Afghanistan, leaving stuff behind. So like, pe- we should be able to make the argument for Trump based on merits. And I think he's more than earned that conversation and earned that ability to be able to endorse him based on his accomplishments. I don't think we need to get into the personal stuff. Like that, That's not what politics is about. Yeah, people always think of it as like a seal of approval that we love everything about the person. I never really understood that argument. It's like, we do have a two-party system, which, by the way, I like. I'm a rare person. Oh, the two-party system stinks. Like, no, actually, I like it. Thank you very much. But we do have a two-party system, first past the post. And the, the pur- purpose of that is that you get bigger coalitions. And so it's less fractionalized. Let's have it, instead of having seven candidates running, and then you can have a weird screwball get elected as your prime minister or something like that. No, thanks. Not interested. I prefer our system. Thank you very much. And just because we say we endorse this person, this is the person we think you should vote for, obviously you're free to choose whoever you want to. But we think there's a very compelling reason to vote for this person. In fact, as Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, the governor of Arkansas, we now have a unique election coming up in which you'll have two presidents on the ballot. They both had one term, and you can compare the two terms. Who did a better job? Like, you know, and I get it. Like, a lot of Republican voters... We're frustrated for so long. You would vote for a candidate, you know, like I remember 2000, 
uh, for especially. You know, George W. Bush goes all around the country talking about marriage, and then he gets elected and he drops it like a hot rock. And then he's talking about wanting to privatize Social Security. It's like, what? And then he's talking about, like, and let's make the world safe for democracy. It's like sounding like Woodrow Wilson. Like, this is not at all what you're campaigning on. And so a lot of Republican voters get frustrated. It's like, wait a minute, I voted for this guy, and then he turns around and does the opposite. I have to say, over my lifetime, I've be- had such low expectations of Republicans running for office because they sound like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington when they're running for office and then they get to Washington and they turn out to be like a Nancy Pelosi. It drives me crazy. So I will say this about Donald Trump. He's the first candidate I can remember ever saying this. He governed more conservative than he campaigned. It was amazing. You know, you get there and you go, oh, what? You want, you want, you want, uh, he turns to his Republican voters. He says, wait, you want me to move the, the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? Okay. And he just does it. And it was like, what? The political insiders in DC are like, you can't do that. He's like, well, I campaigned on it. He goes, well, yeah, but you're supposed to lie in the campaign. And then, you know, when it comes to the uh, actually becoming president, you're not supposed to do any of this stuff. And Donald Trump never got that memo. He's like, what? I, my people elected me to do something. I'm going to do that job. And, you know, he goes, I'm going to appoint people to the Supreme Court to go over to Roe v. Wade. Nailed it. I mean, he did it. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's phenomenal. Getting stuff done. Like, just do it. Yeah. You know, I, Eric Sammons over at Crisis Point, um, he had, he's been on this program before. So we love, we love, yeah, we, we love, we love you, Eric Sammons and all that. But, you know, he made an argument, he had an article, and then he went on his podcast and talked about it this week uh, as well, kind of playing with the idea of sitting this one out and not voting and, you know, if the election's rigged, blah, blah, blah. And to his credit, he has also published, I believe now, two articles responding and criticizing his own toying with this idea of sitting of sitting it out. We should have an Eric Sammons versus Eric Sammons debate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think I think he kind of feels that way. <laughs> Let's go, Eric. Yeah, yeah. Eric, you want if you want to have Mercer on, all for it. Yeah, He'll go for it. All right, come on, Eric. We'll, we'll have you on. But I, I think, you know... Looking at the extremism of the other, the alternative, it's pretty clear to me that we cannot uh, sit this one out. I mean, Joe Biden's like posting, well, he's not, whoever runs him is posting on Twitter. In his own words, Donald Trump is responsible for ending Roe v. Wade. And then this campaign to just applaud people who have killed their own children, who, you know, without me, you, you know, you wouldn't be able to do, to do this. And the, the, the manifest evil of the alternative is such that we cannot sit this one out. And I think it's dangerous uh, in a way to play around with this idea of maybe we just won't participate because the system is so broken and rigged and I don't like it. This is exactly what Chris Rufo was talking about at the Manhattan Institute. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago where, look, these are the institutions that are in front of us. This is the two party system, like you're saying, Josh, that is in front of us. And we for whether we like it or not, we need to take these institutions back because this is what is going to be governing us. This is what is going to be affecting our children and grandchildren. And to just say, I don't like it, I'm not going to play the game, is really, it's just abandoning your responsibility. Well, can I tell you another reason? Let me jump in. Yeah. One thing Eric said in the argument is like, well, what if you're from a red state or a blue state? You know, it doesn't even matter. So I think Eric lives in Ohio and- Ohio. Trump's going to win Ohio. I get it. 
But the fact is, why does it matter that you vote? Listen, Ohio's gotten a crucial Senate race. So Eric, you need to go vote no matter what. Vote for the Republican Senate candidate that's going to defeat Sherrod Brown. He's horrible. Okay. And by the way, this kind of thing, well, my vote doesn't matter for president, that there are hundreds of thousands, millions of Republican voters in California and New York who are like, well, my guy's not going to win anyway. So they stay home. And what happens? Pro-life candidates lose, you know, uh, congressional races and, you know, city council races. And so the Democrats end up sweeping. And you're like, why is California so crazy? Because people think in their brains, well, my vote for president won't matter. Therefore, I'll stay home. And all these other races, which are so important. In fact, that's why I would tell people, get involved in your local level. Form a local organization. Find out what's going on at your school library. Get people involved. Get them to vote. And you know what? If you're running for city council or if you're running for the school board or library board or something like that, you'll get people who like you, who are of similar values. They'll come out and vote, and then they'll vote for candidates for city and state and local and and federal government. Yeah, it's the it's the Beto it's the Beto O'Rourke argument. It's like, why do they keep running Beto? He loses every time. It's like, while well, he inspires people to come out in Texas, he's a turnout machine for his side. Yeah, it's very smart. And so is Trump. In fairness, that's why Trump's been so effective. Uh, and to Eric's credit, he does he does talk about how important it is to be involved in local elections. But I think what he misses is the psychology of the voter and the psychology of getting a lot of people out there. Like you said, Josh, the way that presidential years work, usually voter turnout is high because of the star power or this is what's in front of people. They see Trump and Biden's faces. And so they get out there and they vote. And as a result, like you said, they go down the ticket. They they click Trump and all the Republicans or they click Biden and all the Democrats. And that's how change is made at a local level as well. And it does not work to just say, you know, why don't you just show up in every off year election and vote on the local ballots? Because that's where the power really is. That does That's not how it works in a in a country this large and with groups of people um, and moving the needle, actually making change. So do we want to talk about our our most recent collab with the most notorious grassroots movement in America. Shout out to shout out to me for that title. Wait, uh, I, the the rules on this podcast are I get to brag about me. You don't get to brag about you. That's come on, man. Well, the only reason I I wrote that was because uh, so she was on Joy Reid earlier this week. We talked about it in the Twilight Zone yesterday. And sorry to some of you, and some people on the last one were like, "Oh, it didn't come through." There's a little bit of a glitch. It's up now. But she went on Joy Reid's podcast, Tiffany Justice. She's co-founder of Monster Liberty. Erica just did an amazing interview with her. That was one where I was like, whoa, I'm really excited to edit this one because, yeah, it was awesome. And then I was thinking, too, for the um, the thumbnail for that one, I was like, maybe my favorite Monster Liberty moment of all time was when a cartoonist uh, came up with this cartoon of a bear wearing a Monster Liberty t-shirt with uh, the little cubs next to her and blood on it and people, like, laying in front of it, like, queer flags, like, all the, you know, the the message uh, type stuff on the ground, like defeated it. And it was meant to be like, wow, these people are Nazis and crazy and they'll kill you. And it, right. As if like a mother bear defending her children against evil is somehow a bad thing. It kind of became their emblem. I was like, you just gifted them with the new emblem of mobster liberties, like the most effective uh, grassroots movement. That was awesome. But anyway, uh, she, she was talking about how when she ran for school board, she's like, I can't expect anything of other people that I didn't do myself. And how surprised she was when she joined her local school board, got elected, uh, where she would 
she saw the crazy influence of teachers unions. And I think for any teachers here, public school teachers or people that are involved in that world, you understand how powerful they are. It's shocking how powerful teachers unions are. And there hasn't really been a true grassroots movement uh, to counter that because usually, I mean, teachers unions, to be fair, their entire purpose is to uh, get as much benefit for teachers as possible. They're not in the business of protecting students and they're most definitely not uh, in the business of helping parents. But there's no one representing the students in this equation. It was just representing the teachers and the government represents the schools. And uh, so by joining, it really opened her eyes to how much influence that these school boards have over what ends up in the library. And that gets into the whole book conversation. But someone came up to her one time and she's like, someone complained to her and said, I'm going to report you to the county, whatever. And she just smiled. She's like, they have no power over what we do here at the school board. The school board has all the power in terms of what ends up in the library. And so that's how important these local elections are. It's like, do you care about what gets in front of your kids in their school libraries or public libraries? It's like, it's time to run for office. And, and why is this so important? Like what she's doing, uh, you know, to try and encourage more moms, you know, mama bears to run for local office is so essential. Why? Because serve a little bit on the school board. Okay. And then after a while you hear about the city council seat coming up and you're like, Hey, maybe I could do that. You, you find someone you know and trust to run for your seat and you run for the city council. And then after a while, you hear about the state representative seats open up. You basically become the farm team. You know, you build a farm team, the next generation of leaders, because, you know, right now on the Republican side for the last 30, 40 years, just a bunch of business guys, you know, like they want lower taxes and they're like, what? I just, I hate government regulations and taxes. So I'm going to run for office to do something about it. Okay, I mean that's not. I mean that's fine. I'm not trying to com- complain about that, but they were caught flat-footed when the Marxists come by and they want to shove porn in our schools, and they're like, ah, and and most of these businessmen who are, who are Republicans, like, I don't care about gays, marriage, whatever. Do what you want. I just want my taxes lowered for my business. They're caught totally flat-footed by the culture war, and you know they don't know how to respond to, to critical race theory and the rainbow jihad. So these mama bears, they have a chance to save we America. We know how to respond. Yeah. <laughs> Get the hell out of my kid's face. <laughs> Let's go. I loved her, her line about Obama being a community organizer. And she's like, people laughed at that at the time. She's like, he won the presidency. Like, I am basically a community organizer. People don't understand the power in that. And I was like, man, so cool. Anyway, go check that one out. It's the one before this one. I don't want to talk about it too much, but what an what a awesome interview. Great job, Erica. So uh, next thing that I think people might not fully understand. So there's a little bit of nuance to this, and that's what this podcast does best. But I think people saw the headline. There was a Supreme Court ruling five to four that would take Texas, make Texas take down their barbed wire fence, uh, protecting their border, saying they're not able to use it. Now, this isn't per se a ruling. This was, I believe, uh, a emergency injunction is the right word. Uh, but basically, they said, all right, take it down. Texas, you can't have it up. And I've actually seen some stuff about Texas even keeping it up post this. Like, There's so much tension going on in that border about whether or not they can protect their own state border. And then also on a national level, federal government coming in and saying, well, it's a, it's a national border and it's also your border. So anyway, there's a little nuance to this. But unfortunately, Amy Coney Barrett uh, was the deciding vote. And a lot of people are kind of like, what the heck? So, so John Roberts, either one of them disappointed us on this. Well, John Roberts, don't we expect a little squishiness from John? But Amy, I'm like, come on, girl. 
Yeah. So just to be super specific, and it is a little bit technical, but going through the courts right now, of course, is this battle between uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott and all his awesome heroes down there who are trying to defend their state and the Biden administration, which is saying, no, you need to just let us take care of it, which means letting in 2.3 million you know, undocumented immigrants. I think we're up to 860,000 gotaways from last year was the final number that came out this week. And so while as this is going through the courts um, in a couple different cases, this week the Supreme Court said, in the meantime, Texas, you have to allow the Biden administration, Border Patrol agents, the the federals, uh, to cut through the razor wire barriers. So Texas doesn't have to actively take down these barriers that they've erected, but they do have to allow the feds to come in and remove them. Department of Homeland Security says that this wire that is, it's only 30 miles of a thousands of miles border, right? This 30 miles, somehow of the wire through Eagle Pass is preventing federal agents from accessing the very border they are charged with patrolling and the individuals they are charged with apprehending and inspecting. I think it means the 860,000 individuals they have failed to apprehend. Obviously, that's Texas's fault that they couldn't, right, that nobody's apprehending. Um, And of course, the Supreme Court, this is a temporary order saying that in the meantime, while this case is progressing, Texas, you have to allow the feds to do what they will to your barriers. And yeah, this was this is disappointing because and and Governor Abbott. Wow. What a what a guy. He's he's pulling a Sam Houston and saying, we're going to continue to fight this. We're going to continue to patrol our border. Very Texas, very Texas. So he's got everything but the massive Sam Houston bow tie, which hopefully Poco can find a thumbnail of. Uh huh. And Erica, you have a new perspective for us. I do. I do. So, in like I said, the number now is eight hundred sixty thousand gotaways, and that's that we just heard from um, Border Patrol, and we're adding that now to the three point two million nationwide number of people coming illegally into our country. Um. So now we're well into the three million range, close to four million. Here's your new perspective. That's the entire population close to home Pogo of the city of Indianapolis. Basically, if the entire city of Indianapolis just ran away into the interior of Canada and Canada had no idea what they were all doing. So, yeah, a little, uh, let's hear lo- your latest perspective. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things. I saw another, uh, just before you get into that, Josh, another interesting video from Channel 5 News. I know I was talking about the Trank thing. A couple of people emailed me in about the Trank thing, which is just crazy. But he was at that point in Arizona interviewing these migrants. And a lot of them had the same story, which was interesting. They were all saying that they were fleeing a cartel, being kidnapped. And uh, he's like, oh, it's kind of interesting. They were all the same. And then they eventually got to the point, well, they're being coached about what to say at the border in order to get to the asylum system. Like these coyotes are so, they're so dialed in with their tactics to get them in on asylum. They're like, tell this story. They'll believe you. They have no way to verify it. It's like, man, just every part of me hearing about this border is just like brutal. You got people coming in from, uh, they're escaping all parts of the country to get here, all parts of the world rather. And the stories that they come with are just crazy. Like, and, and a lot of them have this idea of, again, the uh, American dream. You know, you can come here and start a new life. Like, my life was bad in Senegal. I'm going to come here and start a new life. I mean, that, that American propaganda is, is old. Like, that started a long time ago. But 
the new stuff of Biden saying, well, come on in. And then hearing from the friends is, is not helping. <laughs> this is a brand new type of immigration we've never seen before. Uh, it started in 2020. Well, and we know and we know that many of them at this point are not coming for the American dream. They're coming to tear down the American dream. I mean, now we have reported this came out of Rubio's office this week as well. We have confirmed reports of massive ter terrorist organizations operating in South Florida. Like we've got the cartels. They are here. They are running their business. Um, and so, again, this myth that like, oh, everyone coming over the border is just like a family that's fleeing persecution and they want the American dream. That That is a myth. Well, you know why that's frustrating, Erica? Why? Because they're mixed in. And yeah, if we had a legitimate together. process to try to root out terrorists and allow people that want to immigrate here legally for good reasons, uh, we'd have a better country. No question. We have bad law. So it again, this is one of those things where the left likes to use lawfare. So they had a series of lawsuits in the 80s by these uh, left-wing activist groups over asylum and that kind of stuff. They, they talked about the mistreatment of uh, migrant minor children, and they, they sued the federal government and the, you know all these uh, lawsuits. And finally, the federal government agreed to a settlement. And this settlement is called the Flores Settlement. It's now law, and that's basically why we have catch or release now. Like, do you notice that the, the, it, you know, when the feds were talking about this Texas case, they wanted that they wanted access to that border so that they could, what did they say, assess, apprehend, and assess, apprehend, and process. In other words, okay, what's your name? Okay, hope you show up in court in ninety days and then release. Like, it, it is insane. If Republicans were awake, they would simply put forward a piece of legislation saying, we're done with the Florida settlement. We're done with catch and release. Our system now is if we catch you illegally entering the country, we push you out of the country. You're, you go. You go now. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I, it's insane to me. Like, that's the, what every other country in the world can have that law, but we can't because we agreed to some out of court settlement, you know, with a bunch of left wing activist groups. This is stupid. We have a, that's, so when Trump says, you know, gets up there, goes, this is stupid. People are like, thank you. It is dumb. Why do we have this? This is absolute. Yeah. I mean, apparently a large number of black Democrats in Chicago are like, thank you, Trump. This is stupid. There's the, the story that came out this week at Free Press. And then we covered it here about, you know, the black neighborhoods in Chicago banding together and suing the city because their parks and their public spaces have been taken over by these tent cities for migrants. And they're like, wait, what about our kids? You know, how do we get them off the street? So, yeah, it, it is stupid. And thank you, Trump, for saying that. Well, someone wanted me someone wanted me to make this point, because especially with this Supreme Court case, it kind of seems like we're arguing over things that are like shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. But like, OK, this barbed wire, we kind of got to take that out. The point being, we someone wanted me to make this point. Walls, people can get under it. People can get around it. People can cut out sections. It's not about the wall itself or the specific defense mechanisms. Trump's message was so compelling because when he said build the wall, he was talking about something broader. He was talking about border security. And I think to those black Democrats in Chicago or people that live in Eagle Pass, Texas, their life, that, that it's, it's affecting their daily life. And so for someone to say, hey, I'm going to come solve the problem instead of the Biden administration's answer being, well, we're just going to let everyone in. Uh, it's becoming more and more tangible to people. That's why the answer, I think, is becoming clearer. And if you don't understand why people get fired up on build the wall, I think a lot of people in the beginning may be like, oh, that's xenophobic or racist or whatever. 
It symbolizes something broader. It symbolizes that we believe in our national sovereignty and that we can protect it. I think that's a message that inherently to everyone, everyone really understands that. Uh, but we've been kind of bullied into word games. And I think that's the broader point that I'd like to make for people to understand. It's like, it's a, it's bigger than the wall itself. For sure. And like in Chicago, you know, I was just there. I went through O'Hare Airport and all uh, terminal number two is all t- given up to migrants. They just live there in the terminal. They took all over a whole terminal. And so now the flights, you know, are having to reroute the different, you know, places at O'Hare. And people know about it, but like, we're not supposed to say anything. It's like the secret or whatever. It's like, because the media's not covering it. You know, does anyone else know? Like, you you have, wait, what? They, they took over a whole terminal and gave it to migrants? Like, is that good for the migrants? Is that good for us? Why, why are we doing this? I don't understand this. All because we just refuse to say, hey, listen, if you want to become a citizen of the United States, if you want to apply for citizenship, we have a system. You know, you could apply and spend 10 years in line just like everyone else. Uh, but no, this idea we have an open border and we have no ability to control. And then you catch them. Drives me crazy. We catch these, the border patrol catches them and it says, oh, but I can't actually, you know, you think, oh, you caught him. Say, there's the border, go back home. No, we're like, guys, I guess we'll just release you into the country wherever you want to go. It's, it's insane. It's insanity. Next section here, we had a, a lifestyle, a video clip that was rip roaring in the Slack channels as well. It's from a guy named Yuval Noah Harari. He's an Israeli author. Uh, but one part of his TED talk really stuck out, and I actually have it here to play for us. Hopefully, we're going to be able to watch it, and Josh will say some mind-blowing stuff. Many, maybe most, legal systems are based on this idea, this belief in human rights. But human rights are just like heaven and like God. It's just a fictional story that we've invented and spread around. It may be a very nice story, may be a very attractive story, we want to believe it, but it's just a story. It's not a reality. It is not a biological reality. Just as jellyfish and woodpeckers and ostriches have no rights, homo sapiens have no rights also. Take a human, cut him open, look inside, you find their blood and you find the heart and lungs and kidneys, but you don't find there any rights. The only place you find rights it is the fictional stories that humans have invented and spread around. And the same thing is also true in the political field. States and nations are also like human rights and like God and like heaven. They too are, are, are just stories. A mountain is a reality. You can see it. You can touch it. You can even smell it. But Israel or the United States, they are just stories. Very powerful stories, stories we might want to believe very much, but still they are just stories. You can't really see the United States. You cannot touch it. You cannot smell it. All right. So I looked, I looked up Yuval Harari here, and he is an Israeli author. He's a like thinker, kind of globalist, very uh, obviously super into materialism. His, he's known for artificial intelligence and his theory that we are entering a trans transhumanist stage of history, he posited at Davos last week that, in fact, Homo sapiens will be extinct in two generations because we will be replaced by whatever we're going to transcend to. The thing that chilled me most about him is that not only is he uh, obviously like, where did he come from? Very uh, end of the world, 
Antichrist vibes there. Not that he's the Antichrist, but um, he actually uh, is known for his children's series and crafting narratives for children, middle school level books for kids that rework their narrative of um, how the world works. And he's trying to uh, manufacture the next stage in history through these fictional stories that the, the children then believe. So this he he knows where to go. I mean, the guy's not stupid. If you want to, if you want some transhumanism, go for the kids. But, but yeah, this this language on human rights. I'd love to hear Josh's take on the whole concept of human rights because I think Catholics fall into the oh, human rights, good. Well, he said that human rights are not a biological reality. He cut us up. We're all just parts inside. And I'm thinking to myself, this is great. I'll go over to this guy's house, open up the door, and just start you know, snacking on his food and, and sitting on his couch, watching TV. Like, what are you doing? Like, dude, property rights are not a biological concept. So I'm just going to take my time here. You know, <laughs> you should check out, I'm streaming this new video. It'd be great. You know, no, I mean this, it's, it's what I think is so funny to me. You get, you get these guys that come along and they notice that the culture has been operating on Christian residue and fumes. And he comes along and says, let's get rid of every last element of it. Let's be consistent and be more, you know, left wing, more secular, more anti-religious in any way. And he's a big thinker. It's like, no, dude, you're not. This is not even you're not even creative. I mean, like, this is like the most boring atheist argument I've ever heard in my whole life. There's no concept of human rights. OK, bro, there's nothing that distinguishes us from a monkey will throw feces at you at the zoo. Sure. I mean, why not? If that's what you think, buddy, I don't know. Maybe I'll just come to your house and start snacking on your yogurt, though. I mean, come on. This is crazy. This guy. But under, under, under that worldview, I think he has a point. Human rights, if you believe in a pure materialistic worldview, don't really exist. So it's, it's nice to hear someone say it. Because I feel like, again, the Christian residue, I think people that are really left-leaning or liberal, uh, they like to lean on the terms human rights uh, for in so much as it's beneficial to what they want. But there's no real metaphysical uh, depth to the term at all. And so when you get someone who is like this, who's like, yeah, no, that's that's not real. It's all BS is made up. Uh, in a way, he's correct. We could have a more sober discussion in a sense, more realistic discussion. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And I think a lot. Because, of course, the first thing that comes to mind for me, sorry to interrupt you, Erica. The first thing that comes to mind is it, human rights. The only reason they're argument rights to have this argument is, well, we have to be made in the likeness and image of God, therefore giving us all human dignity. That's where our dignity comes from. Otherwise, sure, you you could have points about, well, what do we all want to get together and agree on? Right. That's a Western tradition. I mean, natural law. So sorry, Erica, what were you saying? Well, and I think uh, Catholics can get really confused sometimes about, you know, human, the the concept of human rights at this global scale, which is what he's talking about in this video, that human rights should not be directing nations human rights should not be directing policy because they're not real and it's time for us to evolve and move on from human rights the the whole concept of human rights really didn't as a term used for policy and to justify you know going into countries that are violating their citizens human rights um, interventionist uh, global kind of un uh, language it really didn't come about until after the second world war and the reason it's problematic is exactly what Josh is pointing to, is that after the Second World War, what we saw was this feeling of, okay, if nations and states can do these horrible things that we saw in Nazi Germany, that we saw in Japan and China and uh, under these fascist dictators, 
we need to have some justification for fighting against it. But at this point, the world is a very post-Christian. Europe is a, it's a, in a post-Christian stage. We've been through Kant. We've been through Nietzsche. We've been through that you know, God is dead. And so we come up with this concept of human rights that the UN starts to push, but without the grounding in the Christian, Judeo-Christian understanding of our human dignity, which is a little different from human rights, right? Like rights are something you can enumerate, you can list and say, these are more important than others or blah, blah, blah. But without that grounding in, we're created in the image and likeness of God. The purpose of the state is human flourishing for your final end in heaven. Without that grounding, it does become arbitrary. And so what we've ended up with now when it comes to human rights is you'll hear someone like Kamala Harris saying, we have a right to, uh, to abortion. We have a right to free internet. We have a right to you know, have meat five days a week, right, and to change our gender, but we don't have a right to life. Right. And this is the place that we've come to where there's no idea of foundational truths about the human person anymore. So it does it does just become an exercise in in power. And guys like Yuval here can write his children's books, just creating a new narrative of the goal of your existence. I won't even say human existence because he's sort of like we're post human at this point. But but we really have come to this point where the language of human rights that you hear from the UN or you hear from progressives is so emptied of meaning that it is just whoever's in power gets to decide what you get, how you get to live your life. And I think, you know, we go back to some of the great popes of the past, like John Paul II, he adopted this language wholeheartedly, human rights, human rights, human rights. And I think at the time that he was doing his his thinking and speaking in that, especially the 80s, um, there was a hope that human rights language at the global level could act as a bridge between Catholics who believe in human dignity and, and people of faith and progressive materialism, um, that we all have this common desire for human rights. But I think in the last 40 years, we have gone so far beyond that. And this this video exposes that, right? Yeah. You can't negotiate with terrorists, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, temp was a noble. Right. Right. It was a different time, though. It was a, it was a different period of history and uh, a great deal of truth. It's, it's interesting to go back. You, you brought this up, Erica. That, that, the quote that always comes to mind is like, America is this grand experiment and it will only work insofar as it's in the hands of like a moral people. That's a horrible paraphrase, but I can't remember who. Well, it's like John Adams said that. Yeah, John Adams. But uh, even the founders, I think, understood. J- Josh Hawley actually wrote a good piece on this where the Christian residue phrase you brought up, Josh, is so true. And if we're really serious about it, we need to actually get back in touch with those foundations because those aren't this amorphous human rights that can change with the guard of a new uh, political system. Uh, it's more foundational to that, like like the family is, like human dignity is, like human flourishing is, like all of those things are actually best for humanity. And the founders of the country understood that. Well, and it's not just that, it's that, you know, the United States federal government has a lot of nuclear weapons, a lot of guns, a lot of money, a lot of ability to get its way, right? But ultimately, we believe that there is a higher power, you know, and we have dignity because, as you said, we're created in his image. Even if you don't believe in the Christian view that we're created in its own image, if you still believe at least in, you know, like uh, 
that like even the Muslims would say, okay, at least there's a God. They don't believe that we're made in his image, but they would believe there is a higher power. And why is that good? It's that because whoever the ruling class at any given time and place cannot just run roughshod over you and decide how you're going to live your life. You have some basic dignity, some basic rights that cannot, that should not ever be violated just because, you know, some regime currently in power decides, you know, you're an enemy. So that's why, like, it's important. Yeah, I was reading, I was reading uh, Rusty Reno a couple of years ago over at First Things. He had a, a provocatively titled article called Against Human Rights that elicited a lot of responses from like Marianne Glendon and, the, and that crowd. And um, he, <laughs> but <laughs> he made the point, he said, you know, if we're looking at the gospel, it, there's a lot of sort of progressive Catholics who will say, well, Jesus came and he's, Jesus told us to protect the rights of others. He said, but if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did not enumerate a bill of rights in the Sermon on the Mount. What, what he did for politics uh, in Matthew 5 is he turned everything upside down so that the weak are, um, though the first shall be last, the weak are to be uh, honored and extolled above the powerful and the strong. And so what the Gospels does isn't so much enumerate human rights as it is teach us the way that God sees the world and the way that God sees human society and flourishing and the purpose of the purpose of power is to lift up the lowly, to fill the hungry, to bless the persecuted, et cetera. And uh, it, it was a real, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes if you want to dig a little deeper into his argument. Um, but yeah, I, I loved the way that he used the, the Sermon on the Mount there to talk about rights and this, this idea. little plug there for Rusty. Word. All right. Twad Zone, Erica, you're up first. This is a personal moment for me. This is a personal story. Uh, but first, in Chicago last week, not just not only is Terminal 2 taken over by the immigrants, but it was very cold. And those of you who live out in the Midwest, you might have seen temperatures as low as negative 30 with that wind chill factor. It was very, very chilly. And what happened? All the Teslas stopped on the freeway and nobody could charge their vehicles. And not only that, but a report came out from Consumer Reports. I love Consumer Reports. I go to them if I want to know, like, which brand vacuum cleaner should I buy? And uh, turns out you should not be buying electric vehicles because at the moment they have 80% more problems and are generally less reliable than gas-powered cars. Plug-in hybrid, yeah, and they're way more expensive, new off the lot. I think the luxury model of the Tesla is, the price tag this winter is $200,000 starting at, oh my gosh. All right, but to move on, plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, so like your Tesla that you, you plug in, uh, they have an even worse scorecard with an average of 150% more problems. And one of these is that they don't work in cold weather. Well, on my way to the Hartford airport last week, I had to take an Uber. And the Uber that showed up 20 minutes late because the guy couldn't charge it. It was 15 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, the guy who, the guy who he couldn't charge it, he shows up 15 minutes late and he goes, oh, hey, no worries. We'll get there. In this kind of weather, though, I just have to warn you, the car gets about 30% of its mileage, of, of the mileage that's promised. So I look at the little odometer thing, the little mileage, and it says we have 80 miles left on the car. The airport is 35 miles away. I'm already 20 minutes late. 
<laughs> so the Tesla, as we're going up the highway, the Tesla is slowly and rapidly diminishing in the amount of miles we have left. We get off of the highway. He won't stop. We get off of the highway. He's like, I think if I put it into neutral, we can get to the cell phone lot where I will charge it. I was like, how long will it take to charge? He's like, probably an hour. <laughs> I'm like, My flight leaves in half an hour. And so we get to the cell phone lot. He has to put it into neutral because there's it's at zero, pushes it over. It's the wrong plug-in because apparently Tesla updated all of its chargers and plug-in. So he's like, don't worry, I'll get you a ride to the terminal. And I'm, I'm like nine months pregnant. He's like, I'm like, I, maybe I could just walk. It's two miles away at this point. He's like, no, no, I'll get you a ride. So he goes over to this big SUV. There's a man inside who doesn't speak any English. And he's like, I'll give you $40 to take this lady to the terminal. <laughs> and in my pregnant state, I actually took the ride. So yes, Tesla put my life in danger. <laughs> I did make the flight because the plane also was broken because it was so cold. Um, but it was, it was a great, a little personal experience of all I'm with you, Chicago Tesla drivers. And I hate electric vehicles even more now. I'm always ragging on them, but I really hate them now. I just think the whole the whole push for electric stuff just seems very emotional, though, because people just think it's the you know we've been brainwashed. You know, it started in the eighties and nineties, like how we're destroying the planet and we're ruining things. And the and the automobile is the one thing where it's most obvious, where it belches out smoke, you know, exhaust, and and people feel super guilty about it, like oh, this is so terrible. I'd rather drive an electric car, which will use electricity from a coal plant that I can't see, than this small box that will put exhaust right here and I can drive me wherever I want to go. I've never understood this, like a very emotional reaction to it. It's just crazy to me. Yeah. And this driver, the kicker was, I was asking him how long he's had the Tesla. And he's like, oh, this is this one's great. It's the newest model. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not even he, like an old one and he he oh. never lost his cool he never lost his adoration of his tesla all through it he was very emotionally attached to his tesla that broke and went into neutral it was great i did get a refund me like i'm sure everyone else you know i hope that we're able to get to a place where teslas can operate in the cold or electric fields they continue to improve but to josh's point it's like this weird psyop to force people to accept low performance because it's going to save the planet. Like what if someone created a car that performed really high and was reliable and could do that and wasn't gas, I think we'd all be more open to it. But it's the fact that it's kind of being forced on us when they kind of suck sometimes. Like they're kind of they're kind of bad sometimes. Yeah, and it's like you're plugging it in. Where do they get that electricity? It's like <laughs> most of the things you're plugging it into is coal. So it's not like it's some there's magical electricity fairies that deliver energy that you can plug into. It's like, come on. And the thing is, I know the left isn't serious because if they were serious about providing cheap, affordable energy that, you know, not coal, it would be nuclear. Nuclear energy is extremely affordable and cheap and clean. And if they actually wanted a better planet and less emissions, they would all be pro-nuclear. But they're not because it's emotional for them. And I don't even think they want low energy. I think they're perfectly happy as having, you know, these solar panels and having energy expensive. Because I think I think environmentalists make the the best villains in movies. That was the point that one guy made in the Washington Post a few years ago. So great. It's like, yeah, he's 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 the enemy. 
people stop believing in Thanos. Drive your gas guzzlers, dude. Thanos was probably the last, the last good Marvel villain, and then it's just been all downhill from there because they they peaked at the environmentalists, and now it's just been like, ah, it's just an evil white guy. Yeah, because environmentalists would love to be able to just snap that finger, and half of the people just disappear into the smoke. That's that's the goal, right? The problem. Uh, Josh, your uh, your twad zone. So I I actually don't watch MMA, but. Uh, one of the fighters, uh, Sean Strickland, uh, had a pretty good clip. I, we're probably not going to air it because it's a little salty language, but he makes a really good point. He said, "Look, you could be, you could be installing rebar, you know, at LAX airport, working like a dog all day, working really hard, long hours, and then you come home and you still don't have enough money, and your wife has to go out and enter the workforce, and that means the public schools have to raise your kids, and." You know, you're working like a dog day in and day out like this rat race and, you know, long commutes and you get home and you're exhausted. And he says, and it's so easy. I understand it. Like people want that escape. They want like booze or drugs or gambling. I would even say pornography, video games, whatever, whatever the addiction, he says, is where people are looking for that, like just that moment where they could just kind of like find a way somehow to hopefully relax or unwind right unplug as we would say because we think so much of digital and some people it's the phones you know that's their addiction but i just thought he, he had a really good point there and i you know he was really hitting on a lot of truths there i think he understands his audience well too and i just you know again the video is a little salty but i think he's onto something i think to the extent that donald trump focused on those kind of voters in 2016 he was very successful. He could speak to the forgotten man. That's what Sean Strickland was doing. And 2020, uh, Trump kind of didn't talk about that enough. And I think in 2024, he's got to get off the election, stolen stuff. I mean, I don't expect him to never say it. But mostly, remember to talk about the forgotten man. Uh, I think that will resonate with voters in, in a way because people are struggling right now. They're struggling with the economy. You know, like, I mean, we all seen the grocery prices, um, you know, we got to get back to making things work again. And so speak to that kind of hope. That would be great. Yeah. It's funny you bring up MMA because we've actually gotten a lot of really interesting stories out of MMA, specifically uh, UFC uh, with Dana White. I know we've talked a lot about him. Sean Strickland's an interesting guy, though. Uh, he he did one of the most roller coaster interviews I've ever seen with Theo Vaughn. And as you said, lots of salty language and he's probably got some brain damage, uh, undoubtedly. But he delivered one of the most vulnerable moments I've ever seen on camera. Uh, and it was because they were promoting his next fight with this guy, um, Dreykus Duplee. He's from South Africa, I believe. And as one of the things that, that you know, they kind of have the press conferences and they kind of talk smack back and forth. And it usually gets, it usually gets kind of nasty, but it, it promotes the fight. Uh, this guy... Strykus said something about how Sean Strickland's dad, I believe, abused him. Like, definitely stepped a little bit too far. And you could tell it got into Sean Strickland's head. And Sean Strickland's known for basically being a trash talker. So it was kind of like, well, it's your own medicine, this and that. So he goes on Theo Vaughn's podcast. And he, had, he went on and recounted how his dad would, uh, he was an alcoholic, and he would beat his mom. And he would just hang on his mom's leg. Uh, and he actually just started crying, like on the podcast. He's like, I, I just need a second. And Theo Vaughn, of course, like 
just, Hey man, I'm, I'm here with you, you know, beautiful. And he's like, Hey, we can, you know, we can cut this if you want. He's like, no, keep it. Like, I want people to know, like I came from, this is where I came from. And if anyone else had this experience, you know, they're not alone. So he definitely does zero in on that kind of like forgotten man, uh, narrative because he himself is. And also he's kind of known for, um, colorful language when it comes to like the LGBTQ stuff. And, uh, Dana White, actually, as you put in the insider this week, was asked like, so, you know, how do you, how can you, of course, this smarmy, like Canadian reporter was like, how can you help protect listeners uh, from hearing anti-LGBTQ rhetoric from your fighters or something like that? He's like, listen, or I give him a big leash. Yeah. He's like, you give him a big leash. Well, you, do you feel any guilt about that? He's like, leash. Like, I don't put anyone on a leash. I don't restrict another man's speech. Like you could, we have, you have free speech in America. I'm not here to tell another man what they can and can't say. And he also did a good interview, Dana White, about how he kept every employee at UFC during COVID. He's like, look, if this ship goes down, I'm going down with it, but there's no way I'm not, you know, going to employ my workers. So he's kind of a good example of like, yeah, but that communist reporter, that Canadian communist reporter though, that was terrible because he, you know, like Strickland got booted off Twitter before Elon Musk took it over. And that's what these reporters want. They want to be the, they want to communicate information. They don't like this idea that we all have free speech too. Like they have a big podium, they have a microphone and they can broadcast their views, but they didn't want the little people like us to be able to get out of Twitter and, and say what we want to say. That's what this is all about. Like China, we hear about China having a social credit score. And restricted what people say. We're like, that's horrible. And the elites are like, that's awesome. We want that here, right? And I think too, like they see the they see the popularity and success. I mean, when was the last time that Canadian reporter ever went viral? Never, never went viral. And they're like, they hate that the word the vulnerability, like you said, Tom, coming out and and the the things that these people have the freedom to say, Strickland and all these guys. And like I was thinking too about the Richmond North of Richmond phenomenon last year. Uh, that that these things go viral because they actually speak to people's hearts and their struggles and the real suffering that is going on out there. And we we talk about the fentanyl crisis, but uh, the loneliness crisis and the fact that so many people come from abusive situations and the depression that you know is just devastating our our society right now. It's interesting you brought him up. This is kind of another good example of that. Uh, the guy. He, I've seen so many articles about like, he was offered all these record label deals right after, and he turned them all down. And I'd say probably the last month, I've seen a lot of articles about like, what an idiot. I bet he regrets that. You know, he could have capitalized on that moment. Like, oh, remember him? Like nothing's come out from him since. And what I, people are missing. I was like, this guy does not care. He doesn't care. He never wanted the fame. He never wanted any of this. He doesn't even want to be rich. Like he, I remember he went on social media mad about how his tickets were too expensive in a venue like jacked it up. And he's like, do not pay for this. Like, I'm going to fix it. The people that he wants to speak to don't have a lot of money. And he's like, I'm just going town to town doing these local concerts. And that's what I want to do. And people do not understand true authenticity anymore because I think there's so much selling out. And like Sean Strickland, if nothing else, very authentic. Dana White, if nothing else, very authentic. These are all the biggest voices right now that people are actually listening to. I think people have such good readers now on BS of like, oh my gosh, like they sold out, it's commercialized, this and that. I, it's, I talked to my dad about that too, about like, 
bands back in the eighties. He's like, yeah, they had like one good album, rock album, and then they sold out. You know, they like went on the world tour. They weren't making the real stuff anymore. I'm like, that to me is just still true today, and I see it everywhere. And people do not understand that authenticity always sells. Like they can't understand selling out or selling your principles for more money. And it's so cool to see when people stick to it. Uh, we haven't sold out here at the Loopcast yet. I hope not. I still drive a 13-year-old car, <laughs> but it's a gas car. Okay, that's the deal, guys. 100%. It's a gas car. Yeah, whenever we see Josh driving an electric vehicle, the Loopcast sold out. Please do not listen anymore. It's over. It's over. I'm shuddering it. I push a lawnmower that spits diesel back at me. That's what happens here. <laughs> oh, I thought you had a push mower with no engine. That'd be real. <laughs> be that'd be real metal. I like my gas. Um, okay, Josh, uh, my Twilight Zone probably going to make you happy. Uh, it is uh, Nikki Haley. So Nikki Haley uh, seems like, again, she's living in a fantasy world. I don't know how she thinks the way that she thinks. But she did an interview. Uh, this is before the New Hampshire primary came out. Unfortunately, she lost. But uh, she said, I'm not going to. Here's, here's a tweet that she said, January 22nd. I'm not going to step aside just because the DC establishment thinks someone else should be coordinated. Love it. <laughs> huh. Interesting. She thinks she's DC. She is not DC establishment. And then I did one Google search. I'm like, who funds Nikki Haley? You know, I'm kind of like looking into her funding. Like, what, what are their backgrounds? First one, top Democratic donor. Yeah, top Democratic donor Reed Hoffman gives two hundred fifty thousand dollars to a Nikki Haley super PAC, co-founder of LinkedIn. Uh, he has funded an array of anti-Trump candidates it causes. This guy was on Epstein Island, like he's got Epstein connections, and he's a Democrat mega donor super creep. It's like you're not not only are you establishment, you're so establishment. Yeah, not only are you not only are you establishment, you're so establishment that Democrats are fun, funding you. That's like the definition of establishment. It's like just blows my mind. And then the Nikki Twitter trail's not done. She made a big deal about winning the first six votes in New Hampshire. And I know we have an East Coaster on here. Um, it, it's like a town with like 12 people, right? Or No, Erica's not only East Coast. Erica is from originally from New Hampshire. She knows about the tradition of Dixville Notch, which in 1992 cast their ballots in the general election for libertarian candidate Andre Maru, leading him to a 38... 38- State landslide. Oh, no, you wait, lost no. Trivial Pursuit. Never mind. It you doesn't lost matter. It. It's game cute. over. It's... He's beatable. <laughs> no, it's like it's dry. It's true. Look it up, Andrew. Andre. <laughs> wait. Maroon. So, what is this? This six vote land, Erica? That Dixville Notch is the first in the nation to vote. Not only is it the first state in the nation to vote, New Hampshire, very proud. But they're all the way up on the little tippy top of New Hampshire, just a tiny little town with like a dozen people. And of course, the story was. Nikki's campaign comes out with the tweet saying, we swept the first city in New Hampshire, Dixville Notch. There were six Republicans who voted. They all voted for Nikki because they all just they all hang out together all winter up there and just talk about how they're going to stick the finger. I like these quirks of American politics. Basically, this town got permission to uh, all vote on a, a one minute after midnight and yep. they can release the results so they can be first. at 12, 10 a.m. And so it makes the round when all these reporters are busy waiting for something to happen. Oh, Dixfield Notch. And they're all get, they all nerd out on it, which is fine. Whatever. Shame on you, Dixville Notch, for voting for Nikki. Yeah. Come on, Dixville Notch. But I'm glad they're there. I'm in affection for them. Yeah. So new uh, Luke Cast trivia competition coming soon. Who can be Josh Mercer and Trevor Pursuit? It's come full circle on this episode. But until that comes out, uh, we are done. 
with this episode. If you want to support us, uh, loopcast at catholicvote.org. You can email me at that email address. Uh, if you want to support the program, link in the bio. Uh, rate us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, subscribe to YouTube. We're live Mondays, new DT. We have a lot of fun there. Just going to keep getting better. And uh, I sign out with St. Fidelis, St. Thomas More, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Pray for us. And we will see you guys on the next one. Peace.